If you have your copy of scripture, go ahead and turn to the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter three this morning. We're going to read Galatians three twenty three down to chapter four, verse seven, Galatians three twenty three to four seven. And as usual, I know that you are going to find it helpful to have your copies of scripture open and I will find it helpful to know that you have your copies of scripture open and reading along with me. Uh, Galatians chapter three, verse twenty three to chapter 4, verse 7 this morning, we come to really one of the most marvelous, uplifting, eternally exalting portions of this book this morning, Galatians 3, 23 to 4, 7. Before we do, read God's word. Let's pray together and ask his blessing on it. Our Father, we thank you that you hear the voice of your children We thank you that you hear when we cry out to you because you hear us in your son, Jesus. And you always heard him because he always did your will. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that your word says as many as received you to them, you gave the authority, the right to be children of God, even to those who call on your name. We thank you, Father, that you have given us the new birth. We thank you that you have brought us from the law court to the living room. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are our elder brother and that, Father, you are our father and that we belong eternally if we are in union with your son to you. Bless the reading of your word this morning. Bless the preaching of your word. Father, may your children hear your voice and the voice of the elder brother this morning. May we hear Christ and learn of Christ and be taught by Christ. Lord Jesus, we pray that you, the eternal son, would receive all the glory. For we pray these things in your name. Amen. Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 23. Now before faith came, and literally in Greek it's before the faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian, our custodian, our pedagogy, until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. I mean this, that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant word this morning for us. Well, J.I. Packer, in his masterpiece, Knowing God, has written one of the most memorable statements um, in probably the last 
30 years in Christendom, and this is what he says about the doctrine of adoption, the Christian doctrine of adoption. He says, you sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and of having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means he does not understand Christianity very well at all. J.I. Packer says this, listen, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father, of having God as his father. The Apostle Paul this morning in Galatians is going to bring us into this glorious section dealing with the adoption of sons, dealing with not just how Gentiles and Jews become sons of Abraham, because that's what's been at stake over Galatian, that the Galatian heresy has said only Jews could be sons of Abraham and therefore sons of God, and only a real Jew who believed, yes, on Jesus, but also kept the law, only they could become true sons of Abraham and therefore true sons of God. And Paul is going to move from Abraham and all that we've heard about Abraham. He's going to move from everything about Abraham being the one with the blessings and the promises, the one who was told he and his seed, his offspring, would be the heir of all things. And he's going to now say, let's not just talk about being sons of Abraham, let's talk about being sons of God. Because that's really what's at stake. How does someone become a son of God? Now, Paul has set out two ways in this book. We've seen this. He has set out the way of faith and the way of works. He has set out the way of the promise versus the way of the law. And now he's going to set out the way of sons over the way of slaves, the way of sons over the way of slaves. And so beginning in verse 23, he is moving from the purpose of the law. Why was the law given? If the law couldn't give life, if the law couldn't give righteousness, if the law could never justify you, if you could never be a good enough person to be accepted by God, why then did God give all those commands that say what a good person is? And Paul's told us that the law was there to drive us to Jesus. It was there to prepare us for the coming one. It was there to show us our sin. The law was added, Paul says, because of transgressions. The law came in to tell you and me we're not good people. The law came in to tell us that God is holy and you are not. The law came in to tell us we need a Savior. The law came in to crush us and kill us under the weight of our sin, to fall on us as that great mountain in Pilgrim's Progress, looming over Christian with smoke and lightning and terror, just like Mount Sinai, to come with all the terror of the holy God in the presence of sinful people. And Paul says it was never meant to justify, but it always meant to work with the promise of the coming one. And so in verse 23, Paul is going to continue this. And as we come into the subject of sonship, as we come into the subject of that most precious doctrine of which J.I. Packer says, if you want to know what somebody thinks of Christianity, find out how much he thinks of God as father and therefore of being God's son. And he says, as Paul takes us into this portion of sonship, Paul's going to do three things. He's going to tell us first the time of sonship. Then he's going to tell us the securing of sonship. And then he's going to tell us the experience of sonship, the time of sonship, the securing of sonship and the experience of Notice in verse 23, Paul has 
spoken of the law as having this temporary function in time, in the history of redemption, in God's plan, his unfolding plan of redemption. He says, uh, now before the faith came, speaking of the, the fullness of what Christ brought, fulfilling all things, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned under until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. The law was a guardian, a custodian, until Christ came. So in redemptive history for the Jews, in the Old Testament, the entire legal system that you read about all through your Old Testament, all of that was given to Israel to be a guardian over them until the Redeemer came, until Messiah came. Paul will actually give an illustration in chapter 4, verse 1. He'll say, the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Now, you need to listen very carefully because under the Old Testament, there were believers and unbelievers under the law. There were both Israelites who believed in the Christ to come, Israelites who didn't believe in the Christ to come. The ones who believed in the Christ to come, they were sons of God by faith in Jesus, even under the law. The ones who didn't believe in the Christ to come were slaves in the house of God. They were not sons. God was not their father. They didn't have all the rights to the blessings and the inheritance. Believers were sons. Unbelievers were slaves. And Paul's going to say, but there was a difference between believers under that period and believers in the new covenant. And the difference is that of a child and an adult. Now, I remember, kids, I remember when I was a child... I couldn't wait to drive. I couldn't wait to go to college. I couldn't wait to get out of my parents' house. I couldn't wait to get what little bit of savings my parents had put away for me. I couldn't wait to get any of that. But all of that was kept back from me. All of that was held back. My parents wouldn't give me the car at 14. They wouldn't let me go off and visit friends at college at 14. They wouldn't let me move out of the house at 14. And they certainly wouldn't have given me money in a bank account at 14. And yet all of that was mine. I was a son. They were my parents. My father was my father. I had the right to all those things. I would experience all those things in time. But under that guardianship, under that period of childhood and adolescence, that was held back for me. That's what Paul is going to say. The law was like over old covenant believers. They were sons, but they were like children. They had guardians over them. The law was like a custodian. Back in the Roman world, it was common for a wealthy parent to appoint a guardian, not a member of the family, to watch the kids, to guard the kids, to make sure the kids were at everything they needed to be on time, much, I guess, like a nanny today, maybe a little bit more like a boarding school today. And that guardian was usually not the child's friend. The child usually saw that guardian as restrictive, as restraining their freedom and all their privileges as belonging to this family. And yet that's what Paul says the law functioned at in time. They were sons but they were sons under guardianship. Old covenant believers, David, David, King David, godly King David, Moses, Abraham, all of them, in a sense, were like children. They were real heirs of God by faith in Jesus, but they were like children. And here's how I know that. Jesus said that John the Baptist was the greatest person born in the Old Testament. He said, of those born among women, none is greater than John. John was the last Old Testament prophet. He pointed to Jesus. He, he fulfilled the ministry of all the prophets in himself by saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus said nobody before John was greater than John. John was the greatest man born of a woman. And Jesus says to his disciples, Nevertheless, he who is least in the kingdom in the new covenant is greater than John. 
Jesus said, if you are a believer, then you are actually, you have more privileges, more blessings, know more, see more, understand more, and ought to be experiencing more of God's blessing than even John the Baptist who saw Jesus in the flesh and was the one Jesus said was the greatest Old Testament prophet. He said, he who is least, a child, who knows Jesus is greater than John the Baptist. And so that's what Paul's getting at. The law in time held the sons. It restrained the sons from knowing all of their full privileges, all of the liberties that they had in Jesus. And they didn't look any different than the slaves. A believing Israelite, to many people, didn't look different than an unbelieving Israelite. They looked the same. They were under the same law. They were under the same restrictions. They had to go through the same rituals, the same sacrifices, the same ceremonies. They had to do all of that laborious and burdensome work that Peter, the apostle, said was a yoke of bondage. And brethren, you have no idea what it would have been like to be in a church in the Old Covenant. The burden of scrupulously having to follow every ritual, every law, every act, every command, everything that God... Peter says it was a yoke of bondage that neither we nor our fathers could bear. And praise God, it was temporary. And so Paul's going to say, before the faith came, speaking of Christ bringing with him the fulfillment of the Christian faith and everything in himself, he says, we were held captive under the law and prisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. And then verse 24, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. When Jesus left heaven and came to earth, there was no more need for the guardian. All the blessings were secured in him. In a sense, everything that held back the car, everything that held back the keys to the condo, everything that held back the bank account was taken away when Christ came. And Jesus said, it's all in me and it's all for you. The time of sonship had arrived when the Son left the glories of heaven and came to earth. One writer, and I love this, says, God is an accurate timekeeper. God is an accurate timekeeper. He's never late, he's never early, and no factors are out of his calculation. God knew exactly what he was doing in preserving his people under the law, keeping them under guard, in a sense captive, until Christ came. But God, God is the perfect timekeeper. Notice the language of of Paul in chapter 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those who are under the law. You know, one of the great questions in philosophy is, why do we have time? I remember as a new Christian sitting, reading my Bible, and I had written down a series of questions in the back of my Bible, theological questions I wanted to find answers to in the Word. And number one on that list is, why did God create time? And I remember saying to one of my friends and mentors, I'm wrestling with this question, why did God, the eternal God, create time? And he said, I don't have time for questions like that. I remember thinking, how odd. And I wrestled and I wrestled, and then I hit Galatians 4.4. And I said, that's marvelous. God created time for Jesus Christ. God created time to carry out his redemptive plan. And he says when Jesus came, it was the fullness of time. Time runs on a Christ-centered structure. Time was made for Jesus. He entered into time at just the right time. Interestingly, when he hung on the cross, The world spoke three languages 
Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. God had so orchestrated everything in this world that Greek would dominate the world so that the New Testament scriptures could go out, that Roman roads were constructed so that the gospel could spread throughout the known world at that time, and that the Jewish people still had some sense of their heritage. And when Jesus hung on the cross, in the fullness of time, it was written over him, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. It was the fullness of of time, God had prepared everything. He had planned everything, and he had brought everything to fulfillment in his son. He sent his son into the world to redeem those. Now, secondly, and this leads us to the securing of the sonship, probably the most important aspect, the securing of the sonship. Notice there in verse 4 that Paul tells us, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. The son is preexistent. The son didn't have a beginning. The son wasn't created. God sent the eternal son. The son is from everlasting. The son is God. The son is God the son. He is the son of God. He is in every way equal with the father. Everything that makes God God is true of Jesus. Everything that is true of God is true of Jesus. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you have seen the father. He is the eternal son. And the father, in redemption, planned to send his son to redeem us, and the son is the only one that could accomplish redemption and sonship. You could only become a son in the son. You couldn't have become a son in the spirit. You couldn't have become a son if the father had came and died for you. The son had to come. Sinclair Ferguson has a great quote. Um, Without the Trinity, redemption would be an impossibility. Without the Trinity, redemption would be an impossibility. That's what he's saying here. He's saying that God the Father played the part he had to play in sending the infinitely loved and beloved Son into the world to be born as a man, to take human nature to himself, of a woman, he is the seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15, be born under the law as an Israelite so that he could keep that law perfectly, take the curses of that law upon himself at the cross, rise up and have redeemed everyone who was under the curse of that law. That's what Jesus did. That's what the Son did. And... He did it so that we might become sons in him. There was an old saying of Calvin, the son of God became a son of man, that the sons of men might become the sons of God. That's what Paul's teaching here. Paul's saying adoption and sonship is secured in Jesus Christ. And if you're in Jesus, you get all of that. Everything that's true of him is true of you. Imagine this. Imagine what the father said to the son twice in his ministry. Once at his baptism, once on the Mount of Transfiguration, he said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now imagine the Father saying that to you in the face of all your sin, in the face of all your failures, in the face of your guilty conscience, the the, the condemnation you often feel when you do things wrong, in the face of your self-righteousness when you don't think you're doing things wrong. Think of the Father saying to you, this is my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And He says that to you if you are in Jesus. The same thing He says to Jesus at the baptism, on the mount, He says to you in Jesus Christ. That is what Paul wants you to know, that Christ, the eternal Son, was born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem you from the curse of the law and not just wipe out your transgressions. He could have done that. He could have said, you know what, I'm going to forgive this one and 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 this one through my death, but I'm going to leave them slaves in my house. But God says, I want you to be with me. I want you to be my children. All men are not the children of God by nature. Let me just say that clearly. The whole thing about everyone's the child of God, God is everybody's father, is a wicked heresy. The Bible says that only in Jesus 
are men, children of God, only in Jesus Christ, only those that believe in him, only those who have been redeemed by him, only those for whom he has come to redeem and ransom from the power of Satan to make them sons. To say that everyone is a child of God is a great lie of the evil one. But Paul says not to appreciate the sonship you have may be as equally great a lie. Notice verse 5. The Son came to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. I've never adopted. We have one family in our church that has. But one of the beautiful things I love about families that have adopted is that they emphasize so much, so much of their love and affection for that child, so much of their care. And the child actually, in many cases, starts to look like the parent and sound like the parent and take on the resemblance of the parent. The adopted child, strikingly, Anna and I talk about this all the time, adopted children begin to take on the image of the ones who have adopted them, it seems. And you know what? That's God's plan in redemption. Paul says in Romans 8 that God does everything from eternity, chooses you in Christ in eternity, that you may be conformed to the image of his Son. From eternity the coming of Jesus to eternity, God's plan is to adopt his people and make them sons and daughters, to dwell in his house. Listen, Paul has dealt with justification in the first couple chapters. That was the big issue, how we're accepted by God, how we're legally righteous, how God sees us as righteous people, and it's only by faith in Jesus. But he moves from the law court to the living room. He takes us from the law court as guilty sinners and puts us at the kitchen table and the dining room table, fellowshipping with him, having fellowship with our Father. Beautiful picture of this in the Old Testament. Um, King David, when he finally comes to, to his rightful rule over Israel as the king, he asks if anybody is left in Saul's house, in King Saul's house. And he finds out that there is one man who is lame, who's a cripple, and his name's Mephibosheth. And he doesn't have much to offer David. But the Bible says that David, David, went after Mephibosheth, brought him into his house. And this is what... 2 Samuel 9.11 says, So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth ate at the king's table like one of the king's sons. We are all Mephibosheths in Jesus. We are all brought to the king's table. We eat at the king's table like sons and daughters sitting around. You know, I think one of the hardest things, before we move on to our final point, I think one of the hardest things for us to get is that Viewing God as Father is actually, as J.I. Packer says, really the heart of Christianity, and I think it's one of the most difficult things for us. You know, the parable of the prodigal son. He runs away. The older brother is just as rebellious. He stays home and works for his dad's favor. The younger son runs to the world and rebels and spends all his inheritance. And he comes to his senses, Luke says, and he says to himself, I'm out of money. Nobody's going to care for me. I'm broke. I'll go to my father and this is what I'll do. I'll say, Father, I sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants. The younger brother, like the older brother, saw the father as a harsh taskmaster, as a slave owner. They didn't see him as a loving father for whose approval they didn't have to work. They didn't see him that way. And I think Jesus puts that in the Bible because that's how we tend to look at God. We tend to look at God as keeping a checklist of everything that we do right or wrong. And so we better be good enough and we better try hard enough and we better be proper enough. And the Bible says, look, no, the son was good enough. 
the son worked enough. The son was a good enough slave to redeem you and make you a son and a daughter so that you don't have to do that. And we see our father as the loving, gracious, heavenly father that runs out and brings the robe and brings the ring and kills the fatted calf and throws the party because this son of mine, he says, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We'll notice thirdly that Paul will now move from the securing of sonship to the experience of sonship. The securing of sonship to the experience of sonship. You'll see that in verse 6 and 7 where he says, Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into the world so that you might cry out, Abba, Father, you are no longer a slave, you are a son. Now notice this. Paul has said that God has sent two members of the Godhead to work for redemption. He sent the Son into the world. He sent the Spirit into the heart. The word is apostled. Jesus is the great apostle. He comes from heaven. He is the heavenly apostle. The Spirit is the great apostle. He comes as the apostle of the heart. The Son comes into the world. The Spirit comes into the heart. And what Paul says is that God is now not just making sonship known theoretically, not just telling us how sonship is accomplished. He's actually making us experience sonship. We have to move from actually knowing about things and talking about things to actually experiencing sonship. And that's what Paul wants to say. Notice he says, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, that he sends the spirit to bear witness with our spirit that we are sons of God. The one thing I want to know more than anything is that I belong to God and that I have peace in my conscience and that I'm a child of God and that I'm in Jesus Christ and that I have everything coming for me. I want to know that experientially. I want to feel it in my soul. I want to, in the words of uh, Thomas Chalmers, have an expulsive power of a new affection by the spirit wrought in my heart. And so should you. And God wants that. God wants you to experience the indwelling spirit of his son. Sinclair Ferguson says, and I think he's right, that sometimes there's a danger in Reformed churches like ours where we know there are a lot of hypocrites and we really emphasize self-examination and saying, am I really converted? Have I really come to Jesus? And asking those questions we need to ask that sometimes we, sometimes we end up hurting true believers that ought to have assurance. And Ferguson says it's unthinkable. And listen very carefully, it's unthinkable that a human father would spend the majority of his time trying to convince his earthly son that he's not his son. It's unthinkable that a human father would try to convince his son that he's not actually his son. And yet some people have this thought that God the Father is trying to convince us that we're not really sons of God if we're in Christ. Instead, Paul says, no, he has sent the Spirit into your heart by which we cry out, Abba, Father. You know that word is basically daddy. It's the word daddy. It's the more affectionate. The Hebrew is Av. Ab. Uh, father would be Ab. Daddy would be Abba. It's a childlike cry. The spirit cries like a child. Now, I want to close on this thought. Um, Jesus came into the world and he became a baby. The son was born of a woman and he became the smallest little life form humanity the smallest organism, the smallest 
little tiny fetus in a womb. The Son of God entered into time and space. He was born of a woman. He was born of a woman. He cried. He cried for his mother. He probably cried for Joseph. He probably said Dada to Joseph, though Joseph was not his biological father. It's interesting that that is the first word that most babies, the first word our three sons said was Dada, Dada, when they could speak a word. And this is what William still says. Listen to this. He says, what is the effect of the spirit of the son in our hearts? This is the most intriguing of all. He comes as Christ came to earth, a very babe, the merest bundle of life to cry like an infant. But it is the authentic cry of the child who knows his parent. The spirit of the son in our heart does not cry there for his father as though he was lost in that poor human heart, but as one whose spirit has been eternally fused, not confused, with the human spirit, formerly dead in trespasses and sins, so that as the son cries to his father in our heart, so man's spirit, newborn and quickened, cries to his new father. Now he awakens to the reality and makes the first cry to the father. And of course, the first articulate cry of a child irrespective of race and nation is Abba. Is that not beautiful? The first cry of any child in any language is to cry out for their dad, is to cry out for their father. And the spirit of the son of God is in us doing that with us, making us do that. I want to close with, yes, an introspective challenge and yes a comfort an introspective challenge there's a chance that some of you have never been born of God's spirit you may think you're Christians you may think that you've been born again you may think that you're in Jesus and you may not be and so you do need to examine does the spirit ever cry out within you Abba Father do you find yourself praying through the day do you find yourself saying Father help me strengthen me forgive me I can't do it Father pick me up heal me any kind of praying from your heart to the Father. If not, you need to be redeemed by the Son. You need to experience the indwelling of the Spirit. And for those of you who do know that in breathing, I want to encourage you to meditate on what God has done in making you sons and daughters. You are heir of everything. He wants good for you. He's your Father. He loves you. He cares for you. He protects you. He pities you. He chastens you. He is the best father. Maybe you had a bad father. Maybe you've got to sift through a whole lot of stuff that isn't helpful. But as you sift into the scriptures, you find the heavenly father, the best father you could ever imagine, the perfect father. And he's our father. He's your father. Maybe you didn't have a father. He's your father in Jesus Christ. He's our father. We cry out, Abba. Father, with J.I. Packer, we will say that we understand Christianity best when we understand it as our having God as our Father. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church this morning. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how often we take that, that name on our lips in prayer and yet have hearts that are very far from you and far from actually believing that you are our Father. And so we thank you for this word that we've heard this morning. We thank you for the adoption that we have in time that was secured by your Son and that is experienced as your Spirit comes into our hearts and cries out within us. Father, we pray that we would know, that we would know the blessings of sonship, the blessings of belonging to your family. Father, make each one here know the adoption of sons in Jesus Christ. May all of us know what it is to be seated at the table of the King, 
to be gathered together to marvel at the love and the grace and the care of our Father. Father, please assure our hearts by your Spirit this morning that we are children of God through Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.